You can help new Christians or those curious about the true Easter miracle with the Issues Etc. Book of the Month for March, a simple explanation of Easter. These booklets are sold in packets of 20, making them perfect for outreach programs, new member classes, and in-church pews. Find out more about a simple explanation of Easter at issuesetc.org or by calling Concordia Publishing House 1-800-325-3040, the Issues Etc. Book of the Month, a simple explanation of Easter. Some of the figures in the Old Testament are, well, they can come across as plaster saints just because the character may be not fully developed for us. There's one in the Old Testament who, well, in terms of character development, we learn an awful lot about this guy, and he is a character. Samson, one of the last judges that we hear a full biography of, we get his birth story, we get all of his exploits, and we even learn how he died, and in his death, killing more of his enemies than he had in all of his life. And that was a lot of enemies that he'd already killed up to that point. How should we understand this Old Testament judge, Samson? It's our weekly series through the Old Testament in a church year. Today, Samson, Dr. Ken Cherb is our guest. He has a Ph.D. in church history from Ohio State University. He's director of evangelism and missions, stewardship, and human care for the Central Illinois District of the Lutheran Church of Missouri Synod formerly served as a theology professor at Concordia University, Ann Arbor, Michigan, and as an assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of a series of sermons titled The Old Testament Collection, Preaching Christ in the Old Testament During the Church Year. Ken, welcome back. Wonderful to speak with you, Todd. Before we get into our subject, remind us of what we were talking about last time. After Joshua led that really faithful generation of Israelites into the promised land, there arose a new generation. And that new generation was very different, had very different attitudes, not nearly as faithful. And when they ran into difficulties driving out the little remaining Canaanite-occupied lands and parts of land there within Palestine, they just quit. It got tough, and they just stopped. Now, in the long run, they ended up, it wasn't all that long either, they ended up serving the gods of the land, not worshiping the Lord their God only. But that may not have even been their intent at the start. They just didn't want to oppose the gods of the land right at first. This new generation was impatient. They had unrealistic expectations. They desperately wanted to be liked. So last time we said they really amounted to a bunch of spiritual adolescents. And God said, well, then I'm going to leave some of these Canaanites in the land just to test you. And that sets the backdrop for the book of Judges and the period of the Judges, where the people would fall into some flagrant sin, and they would suffer for it, and they would cry out to the Lord in supplication. He would send a Savior, little s, Savior, a judge, who would bring about some comparative salvation, relief from their enemies for a time. So that's the pattern, sin, suffering, supplication, Savior, salvation. What occurred in Old Testament history between then and now? Well, the book of Judges, basically. We just got started into it last time, and the book tells of a succession of these judges. Now, some are only mentioned really in passing. The stories of others are told in greater detail, and I'll mention just a few of those. There was, for example, Ehud, the left-handed judge from the tribe of Benjamin, 
who killed the oppressor, King Eglon of Moab, and then went out back and got the Israelite army and routed his army. There was the judge Deborah and Barak, and Barak led a military force of Israelites against a Canaanite force that actually was armed with, uh, well, it was kind of the weapon of choice of the day, chariots of iron. And several of the tribes, the Israelite tribes, who were supposed to contribute soldiers to that operation kind of chickened out, especially because they knew that the enemy was so well armed. But the Lord plugged the holes, as it were, in the execution of their battle plan and brought about victory for his people. There was the Judge Gideon, whose army the Lord pared down in size from 32,000 to 300 men as they went out to defeat a coalition of people led by the Midianites. See, Gideon was not only bringing about a temporal deliverance from raids and armies, but even more, his task was to turn the hearts of the people back to God. And yet, in Gideon, you begin to see that a judge could turn out to be a sinner in a rather flagrant way. After Gideon won the military victory, the people came to him and said, well, you rule over us, and then your son after you and your grandson after him. And Gideon said very piously, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. And yet there's a lot in the text to show that his heart was really not in those words. And here's just one hint. Gideon named his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. He definitely wanted to be king. The last of the judges whose story is told in the book of Judges is our subject today, Samson. Was the book saving the best for last? (laughs) Okay, the best. Well, let's think about that. Certainly, Todd, Samson is important. I mean, his story is told in the greatest detail of any of the judges in the book of Judges. And as the story is told, we have this interesting occasion as the Lord announces his birth to his parents ahead of time. Uh, Samson's parents are a man named Manoah and his wife. There are four chapters in the book of Judges on Samson, and one of those chapters is devoted to this particular story, as the angel of the Lord appears to Manoah and his wife and says that this boy that they're going to have will be a Nazarite. He will be under a Nazarite vow from birth. Now, we know from Numbers chapter 6 that the Nazarite was to have no razor applied to his head. Judges says that here, too. But Numbers also says that the Nazarite would have to abstain from wine or strong drink, and he would have no contact with the dead, that is, with a dead body. And and by the way, Todd, this chapter, Judges 13, is a key passage on the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, because it's the angel of the Lord who's speaking to Manoah and his wife. He accepts a sacrifice from them, and that's remarkable enough, because it's God's prerogative to accept a sacrifice. But then remember, too, that Manoah was not a priest or even a Levite. He was from the tribe of Dan, and yet the angel of the Lord accepts the sacrifice even from him. And the clincher seems to be, at one point he says to Manoah, why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? And of course, we immediately think of the prophecy that Isaiah was going to give years later. 
His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. So the angel of the Lord is the Messiah before his birth. It's the pre-incarnate Christ. Well, that's who was talking to Manoah and his wife and saying that their child would begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Now, I suppose you technically should say Philistines, but I've said Philistines for so many years, I just can't break myself of the habit. The Philistines were not a people indigenous to Palestine. They came from Crete, and they were highly warlike. They eventually established a league of five cities, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. My teacher, Phil Giesler, said they were the age cities, the A-G-E cities, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Gaza, Gath, and Ekron. And, of course, it's ironic that even though the Philistines were not from Palestine, they ended up giving the land its name. I mean, we get the word Palestine from the word Philistine. And the fact that their name got applied to the land shows their dominance at one point. So at length, Samson was born, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. And so you might think, Todd, that with that kind of lead-up, this guy Samson was going to be the best of the judges, but in many ways he turned out to be the worst. How is that, Ken? Well, we said before in our last session that, in effect, that new generation that was coming onto the scene right after Joshua and that generation died, and the people after that in subsequent generations, were spiritual adolescents. Well, now in the case of Samson, we have a spiritual adolescent becoming the judge. And you see just how much of an adolescent at heart Samson really is when he demands, not requests, demands of his parents that they get for him a young Philistine woman to be his wife. And, of course, they backpedal. They say, well, how about somebody we know? How about somebody who's like an Israelite? But, no, he's determined he's going to marry outside of Israel. And, of course, he's being quite disrespectful to his parents in the process. He was just spoiled, a young man of great physical strength, but spoiled and pouty. And that's a dangerous combination. However, the Lord was going to use even Samson's sins to bring about a conflict with the Philistines and deliver Israel. And boy, the meter on Samson's sins is running. On his way to see the young woman who's going to be his wife, he gets attacked by a lion, and with his great strength from the Lord, he kills that lion barehanded. And then a few days later, he's passing by that same spot where the lion had been killed by him, and he sees the carcass of the dead lion, And he looks a little closer and sees that a bunch of bees have made a hive in there, and the hive has honey. So he scrapes out the honey and begins eating it. So he's had contact with a dead body. Well, at his wedding feast, at his new father-in-law's place, this is a Philistine wedding, really, not an Israelite wedding, there is almost certainly strong drink. Samson imbibes. So now, see, he's broken two out of the three parts of his Nazarite vow. We might say two down, one to go, and keep that in mind. So he does seem to have great strength, but he does not seem to have any self-discipline whatsoever. Yeah, and he's also smart. It's not just 
brawn with him. There's brains involved with this guy, Samson. He likes riddles, for example. I mean, he made one up based on his scooping the honey out of that beehive from the dead lion's carcass, and he told that riddle at his wedding reception. Now, his new wife wheedled the answer out of him to tell her friends, and so Samson ends up losing an expensive bet. See, one way, Todd, that Samson's lack of self-discipline manifested itself and kept on manifesting itself was his weakness for women. Well, when Samson lost that bet, he went on a rage. He went to Ashkelon and killed 30 men. But again, the Lord was using this immature outburst of sin to bring Samson into conflict with the Philistines. From the standpoint of a lot of people just looking at this from the outside, just looking upon Samson at the surface level, he was the kind of strong guy you wanted to have close by, that you wanted to be close to. And he was not what you'd call theologically uninformed when his Philistine father-in-law ended up giving the woman that he thought was his wife to another man. Well, for vengeance, Samson caught 300 foxes, or jackals maybe, and he took them pair by pair, tied torches to their tails, lit the torches, and then let those animals just run. And in the process, they set fire to the standing grain and the stacked grain. Now, that was a pretty cagey attack on his part on the grain god of the Philistines. And for that, the Philistines just determined that they were going to get Samson. They made a deal with one of the Israelite tribes, the tribe of Judah, to hand him over to them, bound but Samson miraculously got free of those bonds, and he went on to strike down a thousand Philistines with the jawbone of a donkey. Samson went on to judge Israel for 20 years, and through that whole time, in a lot of ways, he seemed strong, but beneath the strength was a horrible, you might even say a hideous, weakness. Dr. Ken Cherub is our guest. It's our weekly series, Through the Old Testament in the Church Year. We're talking about Old Testament Judge Samson. The Philistines didn't forget about him. We'll find out what happens next. You can meet and hear Mark and Molly Hemingway, Robert George, Brian Wolfmiller, Larry Rast, and Will Whedon at the 2021 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference. Making the Case is Friday, July 23rd and Saturday, July 24th at Concordia University, Chicago. Early bird registration is $135. Learn more at issuesetc.org or call 618-223-8385. Making the Case, July 23rd and 24th in Chicago. More topics, more guests, more Jesus. You're listening to Issues Etc. Did you know that Lutherans are helping new American immigrants get settled? How about struggling church workers in need of support and refreshment? And we assist at-risk children and provide disaster response to hurricane victims. Through LCMS recognized service organizations, we are doing all this and more. I'm Rahema Kavuga of Lutheran Church Extension Fund, and I don't want you to miss out on hearing what your brothers and sisters in Christ are up to. Visit interesttime.org to see how your support gives life to these works of mercy and love.
Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. Dr. Ken Cherb is our guest, author of a series of sermons titled The Old Testament Collection, Preaching Christ in the Old Testament During the Church Year. It's our series on the Old Testament through the Church Year. We're talking about Samson. So the Philistines, after that jawbone incident, certainly didn't forget about Samson. Of course not. They offered a huge sum of money to his, well, then current girlfriend, a woman named Delilah, to try to wheedle out of him the secret of his strength. So Delilah asks Samson just straight out, what's the secret of your strength? She asks him three times, and all three of those times, he gives her a misleading answer. And every time, a gang of Philistine thugs jumps him. Now, you might think this would be a pretty strong clue for Samson, that Delilah really means him no good. But, as usual, Samson's not operating on the basis of really anything but emotion. And besides, he had made short work of those thugs every other time, so he continues to to play with the temptation. He appears to be strong. He thinks he's strong, but he's really very weak. Finally, he takes the risk of telling Delilah exactly the truth. He tells her about his Nazarite vow, and the only part of it that still remained intact, which was the fact that a razor had never touched his head. So as soon as he fell asleep, and he may well have fell asleep because he was drunk, Delilah had his head shaved. And once more, a bunch of Philistine thugs set upon him, and Samson came out of his sleep, and he thought he would shake himself as before, and he would defeat them as he did before. But now the Lord was no longer with him. I mean, can you imagine anything quite as pathetic as somebody who thinks he is strong when he's really weak? Well, that, in this case, was Samson. The Philistines grabbed him, subdued him. They gouged out his eyes. And they reduced him to slave labor, forced labor, in one of their capital cities, Gaza. But, and the Philistines did not seem to notice this, Samson's hair began to grow back. So how does the story of Samson end in the book of Judges? Well, there was a big meeting of the Philistine high command. Thousands of people were there. And Samson was brought out before the crowd, kind of as the evening's entertainment. And you can imagine he looked pitiful and weak, weaker than he had ever looked in his life, probably. In that wretched condition, what could he do except be the butt of their jokes? Well, that's how they, no doubt, saw it. But this turned out to be the time when Samson was spiritually strong, because now he was depending upon the Lord. So this big man prayed for the Lord to be with him one more time, and in a final act of strength, he pushed apart the key pillars of the building where he and all these Philistines were. I mean, he literally brought down the house. He sacrificed himself and, in the process, eliminated the Philistine high command. Now, Todd, we can talk a lot about the theology of the cross, talk, but in this case, Samson was living it. You mentioned the theology of the cross. If you would relate the account of Samson to the history of the suffering of Christ. Well, when the Philistine guards first brought Samson out for that crowd's amusement, no doubt they mocked him. And of course, Christ was seemingly weak on the cross and people were mocking him, just like Psalm 22 had predicted a thousand years ahead of time. 
they said the things like this. They said, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now. And they said things like, if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. See, Todd, with Samson and so many others through the years, the Lord had worked through the evil perpetuated by human beings. But now in Christ, God was dealing with the evil once and for all. He, the sinless one, was taking upon himself all human sin and all the punishment of God for human sin. He looked weak on the cross, and yet he was strong, and that strength was much more than human power, human fortitude. It was the strength of God himself. Some of the church fathers compared the divine nature of Christ to a metal fishhook that is hidden by a worm when the hook is baited. And the human nature of Christ, they likened to that worm. So along comes the devil, who's like a predator fish. He sees that worm. He determines he's going to eat that worm. It seems so weak. So he bites. And then the fish discovers that he has bitten off more than he can chew. The hook in there proves to be much too strong. And so the divine power of the God-man, Jesus Christ, turns out to be what defeats the devil. The seemingly weak one turns out to be incomparably strong. Samson, for himself, could only die, even though his death was a noble and a self-sacrificing one. But Jesus not only died, not only gave himself as a sacrifice, but he also continued his work when he rose from the dead to save you and me. Was Samson's last act, and it certainly seems to be, a a purely destructive act? Yeah, it may seem so, Todd. But pushing down those pillars really stood out as quite different from his previous hot-headed destructive binges. Samson did, of course, bring about destruction when he pushed those pillars apart, but he was not merely eliminating a negative He was bringing about a positive for Israel, which now enjoyed peace from the Philistines for a time. And Samson, just like the angel of the Lord had said, was beginning a work that would be brought to completion by, well, none other than King David himself, snuffing out the Philistine threat. So here's another place where we can actually say something about Christ. Jesus was doing far more than simply eliminating a negative by bringing about the forgiveness of our sins. Because with forgiveness come life and salvation and peace and fellowship with God and eternal hope and present joy, the fulfillment of everything for which the Lord has made us human beings. Christ doesn't merely forgive sins. He gives us all the blessings of God. I mean, the Catechism puts it well. Where there is forgiveness of sins, there is life and salvation. Strong is weak in God's accounting, but weak is strong. Just look at Samson. Despite all the spiritual adolescent hijinks that marked his career as a judge, Samson ends up being one of the heroes of faith mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11, that great heroes of faith chapter. And much more, in the case of Christ, the seemingly weak one hanging on a cross turns out to be incomparably strong. We have an Easter hymn that says, Like Samson, 
Christ, great strength employed and conquered hell, its gates destroyed. Oh, let us sing his praises. Give us your true and false review. Okay, true or false. In Samson, a spiritual adolescent became one of the judges. True. And this adolescence, as we've been calling it, was not just a phase for Samson to outgrow. No, he remained spoiled and disobedient and undisciplined, and certainly not living a chaste and decent life, hot-tempered, vengeful. I mean, he was a sinner. He would play with temptation rather than avoiding it. True or false? Samson might be compared to the dumb jock. False. He was physically strong, but he was also smart. I mean, this was a clever guy. He liked riddles. He even showed some theological smarts when he tied the torches to the tails of animals to set fire to the grain and thus attack the grain god of the Philistines. True or false? Samson began the work of fighting the Philistines that was ended by King David. True. In a way, In hindsight, we can see that Samson was really the beginning of the end of the period of the judges. When you had this spiritual adolescent judge, one through whom the Lord worked, but one with so many sins and flaws, well, of course, we now know in hindsight something different was around the corner. And yet, the Lord did work through Samson. So, You mentioned the theology of the cross. Let's finish by talking about Samson in connection with that. Yeah, good point. Sinners, Luther said, cannot stand a kingdom that condemns and rejects all their outward works and ways in which they trust and ask them instead to trust in God's grace, which is mysterious and concealed, being promised solely by his word and comprehended only by faith. Well, Samson knew that the Lord was the source of his great strength, but mostly he took that great strength for granted. He did big things, and he put confidence in his ability to do them. Like all of God's people, in our pretenses of strength, like Samson, (laughs) we are in fact abysmally weak. But then, when Samson, at the end of his life, trusted in the Lord, He may have seemed weaker than ever, but then he was truly strong. St. Paul wrote, We preach Christ crucified. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Dr. Ken Sherb has a Ph.D. in church history from Ohio State University. He's director of evangelism and missions, stewardship and human care for the Central Illinois District of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Formerly served as a theology professor at Concordia University in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and as an assistant to the president of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. He's author of a series of sermons titled The Old Testament Collection, Preaching Christ in the Old Testament During the Church Year. Ken, thanks. Thank you, Todd. Tuesday on Issues Etc., we'll discuss the woke mindset spreading in U.S. high schools with Joshua Pauling. We'll get a review of the Disney Plus TV series WandaVision from Pastor Ted Geese. And we'll have Pastor Tom Baker lead us in a Sunday school lesson on Solomon building the temple in 1 Kings chapters 6 and 11. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for listening.
Listen weekday afternoons to Pastor Todd Wilkin and guests on Issues Etc. Issues Etc. is a listener-supported program. Your financial support is vital for the continuation and expansion of this worldwide outreach. Our mailing address, Issues Etc., PO Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. Box 83, Collinsville, Illinois, 62234. You can also donate at our website, issuesetc.org. Issues Etc. is a production of LPR, Lutheran Public Radio. How should Lutherans respond to the assertion, your church is too Catholic? Find out in Pastor Will Whedon's column in the latest Issues Etc. journal. We'll send it to you for free. Just click the red journal subscription button in the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. In the Wittenberg Trail feature, Joshua Pauling traces his path from big-box evangelicalism and Reformed Calvinism to the treasures of historic Christianity found in the Lutheran Church, the free online Issues Etc. journal. In a world awash with all sorts of information, opinions, and ideas, there is still a place where God's Word is the central and only focus. Messiah Lutheran Church, 801 North Madison, Lebanon, Illinois. At 9 o'clock on Sunday mornings, God's people gather there to listen to Him. There you will find His words of law and gospel, and of course, our Lord's Holy Supper. Bible classes focus on the Bible and the Lutheran confessions. Come, listen, believe, and live, and check out our website at messiahlebanon.org.